Let me ask the rest of you, if you would please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20 is our text for this morning as we continue to see the power, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we saw it over the storm, and this week we'll see it over the storm inside of a man who is possessed by demons. As we see Jesus deliver this man, it reminds us of the power that he has and the amazing grace that he has in order to transform. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. We too marvel at your power, Lord Jesus. As we approach your holy word, we pray that you would make our hearts ready to receive it. We pray, God, that you would humble us, lay us low before this demonstration of your great power and of your great mercy. Lord, as we see your power demonstrated over Satan and his forces, no matter how many of them, we pray that you would exalt our hearts in worship and put steel in our spines, that we would have great confidence that no one 
can thwart your plans. That you are more powerful than anything or anyone. That there is no one who is outside of the saving grace which you possess. We confess, Lord, that we often think there are people that are outside of your saving grace. Perhaps we may not say that out loud, but the way that we think about certain non-believers proves that reality. We're tempted to think, how could you ever save anyone who is involved with Planned Parenthood in any way? We're tempted to think, how could you ever save anyone who is involved with corrupt leadership? We're tempted to think, how could you ever save anyone who is completely given over to a life of drugs and alcohol, a life of total waste? But open our eyes to see the truth that there is no one that is outside of your saving grasp. And yet at the very same time, Lord, as you have already taught us in the parable of the soils, three out of four of them did not respond appropriately to the gospel. It grieves our hearts to see that there are still those who do not respond appropriately to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would rather go on without Jesus and have the ins and outs, the daily habits of their lives, the things that they love more than you. Lord, we grieve at that, but we know that only you could open their eyes. And yet, that knowledge that only you can open their eyes is not pessimistic, but optimistic. We know you can. So we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your saving power and you would invigorate us with that very same saving power so that we would be faithful to sow the seeds of the gospel. Lord, if the Applegate Valley, if Southern Oregon, if the whole world is ever going to change for the better, it will not come through political deliverance. It will not come through military might. It will come as souls are saved in response to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, make us preachers. Make us preachers who love you so much, who are so desperate to tell others about the mercies of the Lord and all that Jesus has done for us and all that he could do for them if they would turn from their sins and believe in him. We believe what you say, Lord. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we, t- we say together, Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recent projections estimate that there are as many as perhaps 8 billion people in the world's population. Eight billion people scattered all across this globe that belongs to our God. Of those eight billion people, there are groups of Christians known as missiologists, those who study the subject of missions and then seek to strategize about how to get the gospel to those eight billion people 
those missiologists estimate that of those 8 billion people, depending on who you ask and what criteria they use, there are as many as 17,000 different and unique people groups that make up those 8 billion people. They define a people group as the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. So basically, a people group is a group of people, duh, right? A group of people who would share the same language and could communicate with one another in a way that would effectively spread the gospel through those particular people. More than 17,000 of them comprise our 8 billion person population. That's a lot of people to think about, isn't it? We can't even comprehend how many 8 billion is. And then you break that down to 17,000. We could comprehend that a little bit more, but it's a massive amount of people. How could we possibly figure out how to think in such a way, in such a way to quantify that many people? It can be quite overwhelming to think about the number of people in the world, can't it? And yet the Bible gives us some helpful indicators, a helpful simplification by which to think about those very same people. While the Bible certainly would acknowledge those people groups, you think of, for instance, throughout the book of Revelation, the acknowledgement that there will be in heaven worshiping God, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the Bible certainly acknowledges those people groups. However, the Bible also simplifies things for us and breaks down the entire human race into two categories. Eight billion people, you could say, fall into one of two different categories. Those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan. It may strike you funny as describing that as those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan. Perhaps you think about it more like those who belong to God and those who don't, right? Go with me to 1 John chapter 3, just to get a little bit of a survey. We did this a few weeks ago, but I want to come back to 1 John chapter 3 to give us these categories. I don't want you to take my word for it that the Bible says it. I want you to see that the Bible says this is the two category. These are the two categories upon, in which everyone can be broken down. I want to read for you 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, paying special attention to verse 10 when we get there. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in, in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we need to understand that as we navigate our world, as we navigate our neighborhoods, as we navigate the 8 billion people broken down into 17,000 plus people groups, we need to understand that the Bible says they belong to one of two fathers, God or Satan. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as well, a passage you are very familiar with, I trust, Ephesians chapter 2 explains to us a very similar thing. I want us to think about Ephesians chapter 2 because I want us to understand that as we think about the children of God and the children of Satan, we could be easily tempted to feed our pride and to think, well, I'm a child of God. I'm not a child of Satan. Here's the point that Ephesians 2 makes You were, you were a child of Satan. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a child of Satan, but you were. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 4, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who do you think that is? Satan. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We'll stop at verse three. Everyone here this morning, at one time or another, either now or previously, belonged to Satan as his child. Everyone here this morning, at one time or another, either now or previously, was bound by Satan in order to do his will. You weren't free. Everyone here this morning, at one time or another, either now or previously, was enslaved by a cruel, heartless, and murderous master who came only to steal, kill, and destroy even his own children. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that in the case of those who are under the bondage of Satan as his children, in their case, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How many times have you thought to yourself, or perhaps even said to another believer, 
Why don't they get it? Why can't they see? It's so plain that Jesus died for their sins. Why can't they see? Because there's more at work than you realize. Because this war is a spiritual war. Because there is an evil force behind their blindness, and his name is Satan. And he will do everything he can to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We may have a variety of understandings about Satan and his work, most especially thanks to Hollywood. But the worst, in fact, the greatest evil that Satan can ever do, his highest goal is to snatch souls away from God by keeping them from believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. While Jesus explained that Satan came to steal and kill and destroy, he also declared that he came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to free you from the family of Satan and to secure the Father's adoption of you in him so that you would now have a new family and a new father. Jesus came to deliver you from the torturous imprisonment of that cruel deceiver so that you would now be free to do his will. Jesus came as the good shepherd with a heart full of compassion who laid down his life for his people so that he would give them eternal life. Jesus is the only one who can deliver you from the grip of Satan, completely transform you, and then put you on a mission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to tell everyone what Jesus has done for you. The demon-possessed man and his deliverance in Mark chapter 5 teach us some valuable lessons about spiritual warfare. It's true that not all of the children of the devil are possessed by him, but they all, all are his possession. Jesus shows us in Mark chapter 5 that he and he alone can do something about that. And he and he alone will do something about that. Go with me then back to Mark chapter 5 as we pick up the story of Jesus Christ, the ministry that Jesus undertook as Mark tells us about it. We left off last week with the calming of the storm and the awe of the disciples. We pick it back up in chapter 5, but I want you to notice the question that chapter 4 ended with from the disciples. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is Mark's answer to that question. As we then approach this passage, I think that the deliverance of this demon-possessed man teaches us some important lessons about spiritual warfare. In fact, I think we can learn four of them. So as we walk through this passage, I want us to see four lessons on spiritual warfare that give us confidence to preach the gospel. 
This is not an infatuation with the demonic. This is not a denial of the demonic, though Satan would love either one of those. This is a right recognition of Satan in his activity and a greater recognition of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. The first lesson then that we learn comes to us in this man. The lesson number one is that there is nothing that man can do to be set free from the grip of Satan. Verses one to five, there is nothing that man can do to be set free from the grip of Satan. You'll notice verse one sets the scene for us. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. You'll read all sorts of things about the debate about where the country of the Gerasenes is. There were multiple cities with close names. Uh, Matthew uses a different name for this land. The key word here is the country of. Not the city itself, but the land in which it belonged. We can put the context together and realize, number one, Mark tells us they came to the other side of the sea. So there, it's on the seashore. And then it's the country of the Gerasenes. So he sets the scene for us. Jesus steps off the boat, verse two. When Jesus had stepped off the boat, immediately there met him a man, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. You can see the scene. Jesus' foot hits the ground and immediately a demon-possessed man comes running up to him and meets him there. Where was he living? Verse three says, he lived among the tombs. No one in their right mind makes their home in the cemetery. No one in their right mind makes their home in the tombs in those days. This was a Gentile land. We can see it all over the place. That's emphasized that the man has an unclean spirit. The unclean spirit, which actually is multiple spirits within the man is then uh, asked to go into a herd of pigs and Jesus gives permission. Pigs were not farmed. Pigs were not kept in the land of Israel. Pigs were considered unclean animals. No Jew would go anywhere near a pig, let alone a, a herd or a swarm or a flock. What do you call a gaggle of pigs? Whatever it is let alone 2,000 of them. There's no way a Jew would do that. This is a Gentile land. I'll remind you that Jesus does everything he does on purpose, doesn't he? Mark's original readers most likely were in Rome, a Gentile land. Mark's original readers, most of them would have themselves been Gentiles. This is just another indication that the gospel was never intended for the people of Israel alone. But that just as God promised Abraham, all nations would be blessed through him. And so this man comes and meets him. The man is a total mess. Mark continues to tell us as he explains now the significance of the man's torture, the the man's condition. He says, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. You see what Mark is emphasizing there? No one, no one, no one. Here's the point that Mark is making. 
These people did everything they could to try to capture and try to secure this crazy demon-possessed man, but no one had the ability to do it. They put the shackles on him and the chains on him, and like Samson, he just broke them. So they confined the man to the outside of the city, and they let the man live in his misery. Certainly, everyone knew about the lunatic that lived in the cemetery. But no one had the power to restrain him in any way whatsoever. Mark is making it abundantly clear what the man's condition is. He had an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. He was unable to be bound. And verse five tells us, night and day among the tombs, And on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Night and day, crying out with the evil shrieks of demonic and taking sharp stones and cutting his flesh. We could speculate, and many have, as to why he was cutting his flesh. Perhaps he was trying to get what was inside of him out Perhaps the demons were doing all they can to torture this image bearer. Perhaps the demons were doing all they could to kill this image bearer, though there was still a remaining ounce of willpower that would not allow him to be killed. We don't know exactly, but the point here is to focus on the hopeless condition that this man was in. He would have been a bloody, scarred, infected mess of a man. Luke tells us, in fact, that the man was naked as well. You see the man's condition, don't you? A total mess. A total mess. A total hopeless cause. And yet, as we understand this man's condition, it provides for us a mirror of our natural condition. Ephesians 2 already told us that we were dead in our trespasses. We lived amongst the tombs also. That we were sons of disobedience. Our lives were chaos. That we lived in the passions of our flesh and carried out the desires of the body and mind. We did whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, no matter what anyone else said. And that we were by nature children of wrath. You see, what we have in the disgusting external display of this man is a picture of the disgusting internal display that every natural person has outside of Christ. You think the physical is worse, is bad. You should see the spiritual. God's diagnosis of everyone's heart is bad, evil wicked. We don't really realize it, I don't think, but sinner is the worst thing that you could be. This man's condition mirrors our spiritual condition. Ephesians 4 goes on to to explain that we, before Christ, and those who are still outside of Christ, had futile minds. Their thinking was a total mess. Do we see that anywhere? 
that we were darkened in our understanding, we were alienated from the life of God due to the ignorance that our hard hearts created. That we were callous and that we were given to sensuality and that we were greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You think crying out amongst the tombs and cutting yourself is bad. Just think about our spiritual condition. The reality is that just as in this man's life, so is in our lives and so is in everyone else's lives that unless God intervenes, unless God himself changes the condition of that heart, there is no hope. And while the sinner may be clean, while the sinner may be wealthy, while the sinner may be well-fed, while the sinner may have influence and friends and family, while the sinner may enjoy hobbies, the reality is that the sinner is dead and completely under the grip of Satan himself. Mark emphasizes here, no one could do anything about it, so they just tolerated it. While there is nothing that man can do to be set free from the grip of Satan, the second lesson that we learn is that there is no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free. There is no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free. Not a president, not a planned parenthood, not a terrorist, not a loved one who just won't believe. There is no one under the grip of Satan, whom Jesus cannot set free. Verses 6 to 13 teach us then about Jesus' response to this man. And when, Je- and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. We've seen this already, that the demons acknowledge the identity and the authority and the power of Jesus. And this is exactly what happened here again in this situation. Verse 7 says, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This demon cried out with a very similar cry to the demon in the synagogue. What is your business with me, Jesus? What do you and I have in common? What do you want here, Jesus? And you'll notice that the demon, once again, just like all the other demons so far throughout the Gospel of Mark, unlike any other human being so far throughout the Gospel of Mark, acknowledges who Jesus is. He knows. He knows. He's the Son of the Most High God. Yet another indicator that this is a Gentile land. Gentiles thought about gods, plural, various gods. Some of those gods were stronger than other gods, and so the Jews would say that their god is the most high god. You have Zeus, and you have Nike, and you have all of those other gods. We have Yahweh, the most high god. And so the demon acknowledges Jesus with the Gentile designator of who God is, the son of the most high God. And shockingly, he adjures, which is a way of commanding, he adjures Jesus by God to not torment him. Satan and his demons know the end of the story. They know that one day God will send angels to reap a harvest. 
Those angels will gather in all that has ever been sown. They will gather the elect and the non-elect. And amongst that harvest, Satan and his fallen angels will be cast then into the lake of fire where the non-elect will be cast as well. They know that's going to happen. They know their time is running out. And so they make every effort to blind the eyes of those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. So they command him by God, don't torment me before the time. It's not yet time for us to be cast into the lake of fire. While they may try to give a command to Jesus, it simply bounces right off of him. Verse 9 says, And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And you'll notice then after this, the indicators of this man, who he is, goes back and forth from singular to plural. He and we. Jesus asks what the demon's name is. The demon replies, legion, for we are many. A legion in the Roman army was a a unit that was comprised of about 6,000 troops. Perhaps there were 6,000 demons inhabiting this man. I think it was probably more likely just a way of saying there are a whole lot of us inside of this guy. And it was another way of illustrating that what was happening here was war. He uses a military unit in order to describe the size of who he is. This was war. But no one matches Yahweh of hosts, God of armies. Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't sweat. He doesn't cower. Verse 10 says that the demon begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. There's a lot of speculation amongst all of the details that we read. Perhaps the demon was confined to a certain country. Maybe that was his, their assignment from Satan. You terrorize this area. Maybe that was the case. Maybe it wasn't. But the point here is that the demon recognizes the authority of Jesus and begs him not to banish them from their location. Verse 11 says, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Verse 13, so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. They beg, Jesus grants permission. They go into this herd of pigs, numbering about 2,000, and they inflict the same torturous imprisonment that they were trying to inflict on the man, except this time, they killed the pigs. The pigs rushed off of the bank, down into the sea, and 2,000 of them drowned. How many pigs do you think number 2,000. What would it look like to see 2,000 pigs? I wonder how many pigs we could fit. I don't want to try it, but how many pigs could we fit in this room? Probably not 2,000. Yeah, it'd be pretty smelly. Probably not 2,000. 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. In fact, 
it was probably the bulk of the economy of this town. This town, it's speculated, could have been a town that raised pigs in order to feed the Roman army. Jesus doesn't tell us that. Mark doesn't tell us that. It doesn't really matter. The point is, they asked to go in the pigs. There were 2,000 of them. Jesus says, yes, and they destroy the pigs. You'll notice so far, the focus has been not so much on the man, but more so on the legion, the demon. The demons, plural, so far. I would remind you of what verse 3 told us back in uh, chapter 5 here. That the man lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Does that word remind you of anything that we have studied recently? No one could bind him? Look back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 27. Jesus is giving parables. He's been accused of working under the power of Satan. And he simply explains to the people how foolish it is to think that Satan would work against himself. And in verse 27, he says, actually, let's start in verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. What are we seeing in Mark chapter 5? We are seeing the binding of the strong man and the plundering of his house. While people get concerned that 2,000 pigs had to die that day and they claim, well, pets are people too, the reality is that God does not value any number of animals any more than he values one human soul. We love our pets. They're important to us. We hurt when we lose them, but the reality is pets are not people. They do not bear the image of God, but this man did. No matter how marred and scarred that image may have been, no matter how mutilated he may have looked, the reality is he had been made in the image of God and Jesus saw him as more important even than 2,000 pigs. Mark has already told us about the binding of the strong man and the plundering of his house. Now he shows us what he's talking about. And he teaches us that no matter how awful a person may be, no matter how skewed your view of them might be, there is no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free. Let's press that in a little bit more. Who are you tempted to think has no hope of salvation? Who that you interact with, either personally or perhaps in your way too much consumption of the media, put more Bible, less news, okay? Seriously. Who are you tempted to think 
couldn't be saved. Now, you know better than to say they couldn't be saved. You'll say, well, I know they could be saved. But in your deepest heart, do you really think that they could be set free by the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, immediately, your theology kicks in, right? Well, I know they could be, but I know that only the elect will be saved, and so I I just don't really worry about those things. I let God handle it, but that's not the response that the Bible wants to leave you with. Paul said that he did all things for the sake of the elect. True. But that included preaching the gospel to everyone he encountered, even to the point where he was stoned and beaten multiple times. He could have simply said, those Gentiles, they're a bunch of idiots. They're so dead in their sin. They're way far gone. They're probably given over to a reprobate mind. I'm just not going to waste my time with them. How will a sinner ever be changed unless we waste our time with them? How will the one who is under the grip of Satan ever come to be free unless you and me go and tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And yet so often we sit in the comfort of our homes, in the glory of our nation, While so many people are enslaved to Satan and they don't even know that there's a Savior. They don't even know that Jesus has come to bind the strong man and to plunder his goods. And he's not thinking about stuff, but souls. There is no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free. This leads us then to our third lesson, a lesson that balances out and brings us back to reality. Lesson number three is, yet some remain in bondage. There is no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free, yet some remain in bondage. And now we see an illustration of the parable of the soils. We see this in the response of the townspeople. Verses 14 to 17 says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. Of course they fled, right? They had no more job. Immediate unemployment. All their pigs are dead. They got nothing else to do. They fled and they run back into town and they tell everyone about what had happened. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Praise God indeed. Can you picture it? This man who was naked lived in the tombs, ate probably the scraps that pagans would leave for their dead ancestors cut himself night and day, screaming, a raving lunatic, and now he's sitting down. You know who he's sitting by, the same person you would sit by, Jesus. He's sitting down by Jesus because he just wants to be by the one who has transformed him and set him free. He's sitting there, and he's just marveling at Jesus. He's free. 
He's no longer possessed. You'll notice that Mark emphasizes the fact that he was possessed. The demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. As if you forgot what Mark was talking about. Remember, the man was possessed, now he's not. And it wasn't just that he was possessed, but there were perhaps thousands of demons inside of this one man. And now he's sitting there and he's in his right mind. The people knew this man. They grew up with him. They played sports with him. They saw it when he lost his first tooth. They played in the fields with him. They celebrated his birthday. They knew who the man was. And yet they had seen his life crumble. Total ruin. And now they come back to the tombs and they see him completely changed. What do they do? They fear. Because this is what happens when you see the power of Jesus. You fear. And yet notice what else they did. Verse 16, and those who had had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Different translations translate this differently. I think beg is probably the best one because it is the one that we resonate most with. First, the demon begged twice. Now the people beg. While you would expect their begging to be perhaps, Jesus, please replace the pigs that we have lost. Please replace our livelihood. The reality is that the blindness that they remained under, the grip of Satan that they were in, the God of this world had blinded their minds, blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they beg instead for something, uh, instead of begging something from Jesus, they beg that Jesus would get lost. Please get out of here. We don't want you around here. What? They can see with their own eyes the transformation in this man. They clearly acknowledge the power that Jesus has. Otherwise, they wouldn't beg him, right? You've got the whole town. It's a couple thousand maybe on one or 12, they could take Jesus and his disciples if they wanted to, couldn't they? But they acknowledge his authority. They know they cannot make a command against Jesus. How are they to go up against a man who had just cast out thousands of demons? They can't do it. And so instead they beg. They acknowledge his authority, but they say, get out of here, we don't want you. You know somebody like that, don't you? Well, I know Jesus died for my sins, but I just don't really need him. I believe in all that Jesus stuff. Jesus was a good teacher, but there are a lot of good teachers. Why do they respond this way? Because they were still under the grip of Satan. No, they weren't possessed by demons, but they were possessed by Satan. He was in, he was holding on to the grasp of them that he had. This, this is what it is to be dead in sin. No matter what you see with your eyes, you will not perceive. No matter what you hear with your ears, you will not understand until you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So we're seeing these lessons from the parable of the soils illustrated everywhere for us. Perhaps they valued their pigs more than Jesus. Perhaps they valued their everyday lives, but they would rather trade uh, this crazy demon-possessed man. They'd rather have him back rather than the sane power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know something? You used to do the same thing. You used to do the same thing. Until God opened your eyes. Because the reality is, only God can open the eyes of the sinner. Only God can set the sinner free. So we see in the first response then that some remained in bondage and then we see the second response, the story of our lives. While others are set free, while some, yet some remained in bondage and lesson number four, while others are set free to preach about the Lord's mercy. The fourth lesson is that others are set free to preach about the Lord's mercy. We see the response of the crowd, the the response of the townspeople, the response of everyone living in the country, and now we see the response of the man whose life had been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, as he was getting into the boat, you'll notice the people had no authority over Jesus, but he acknowledged their requests. You want nothing to do with me? I'll leave. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, here's your fourth beg, begged him that he might be with him. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, please let me go with you. I've never been alive until now. Let me just be with you. I don't want this life anymore. I just want to be with you, Jesus. Let me stay with you. But verse 19 tells us that while I'm sure Jesus' heart was warmed by the man's response, Jesus had something more important for the man to do than to be with him. For the first time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does not tell someone to to be silent about him, but instead commissions someone to go and preach about him. Verse 19 says, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The ESV says, go home to your friends. Literally, the text says more something like, go to your home to those who are yours. Jesus is saying, go back to the place where you grew up. Go back to the people that know you. Go back to the people that love you and tell them. Tell them about what the Lord has done for you. Tell them how the Lord has had mercy on you. When Jesus says how much the Lord has done for you, most likely he's referring to his father. But notice what verse 20 says. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You see, the man knew who the Lord is. Jesus 
the one who had set him free, the one who had transformed his life, and the one who had said, go and tell him about me. Tell him about the mercy of the Lord. Tell him about what I have done for you. The reality is, everyone who has been transformed by the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ wants nothing more than to be with him. I can't wait. I can't wait. I sometimes sit and think about that. What will I do when I see him? What will I feel when I see him? I don't know, but I just want to see him. I just want to be with him. It would be so wonderful to be with him, won't it? And yet Jesus says, I've got a different mission for you first. You will be with me. But before you are with me, I want others to be with me too. Now you go and tell them. You go and tell them about the mercy of God. You go and tell them about what I have done for you. You see, we see in this man, in this first Gentile preacher in the Gentile land of the Decapolis, we see in this man what the church is to do today. Go and tell him. Tell him about the mercy of the Lord. Tell him about all that Jesus has done for you. Some will believe. Others won't. But it's not up to you. You sow the seed and you go to sleep. Because you trust that the power rests in the God of the gospel and in his gospel itself. We've seen the power of Jesus over Satan to deliver the captive, to transform them, and to send them out on a mission to preach to others about the mercy of God found only in him. And then we've seen the various responses, two responses here, but the various responses to that power. Some begged him to go away because they liked their lives without Jesus just fine. But the man who is delivered, who is set free from the, grip, from the grasp of Satan, he begged that he would be able to go with Jesus. Let me ask you this morning then, which of those responses describes you? Do you beg Jesus to go away? Or do you beg that you would be with Jesus? Perhaps just based on the very fact that you're here this morning, you would be tempted to quickly answer, oh, I beg Jesus to be with him. Of course, I totally want to be with him. But I want to ask you to think about that. Is that really what your heart wants? How would you know if that's what your heart wants? Well, you'll notice there were two things that characterized this man after his transformation. First, his desperation to be with Jesus. For this man, because of what Jesus did, everything was now about Jesus. He went, and secondly, because everything was about Jesus, he told everybody about Jesus. 
he preached about the mercy of the Lord in Jesus. How do you know if your response, if the category you fall into is to beg to be with Jesus? You know because number one, Jesus is the most important thing to you and it's shown in every area of your life. And number two, you use every opportunity in all your failures, but you use every opportunity to tell other people about the Lord Jesus. That's how you know. That's how you know that you have been changed. You can picture it, can't you? This man goes home, back to his mom and dad's house, where he lost his first tooth where he celebrated his birthdays, where he played with the neighbor kids out in the field, where he was raised in school and grew up and learned his trade, the place where people knew him and loved him. And when they saw him come back, they see him clothed and they see him in his right mind. They know he had been gone for a while. They know he was a lunatic possessed by demons. They had tried to shackle him and chain him and bind him, but it didn't work. So they just confined him to mind his own business while they minded their own business. They knew there had been a change in this man. And so you can just imagine Imagine them asking him, what happened to you? And you can almost hear the man's response. My life was a total mess. But then I met Jesus. And everything changed. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus Thank you that he and he alone has the power to transform us. Thank you that he is the one who can bind the strong man, the strong man who once had a grip on us, who once used us as his pawns to do his will, who we once lived under following every passion which we felt, every desire we had, We had no capacity to save ourselves, to transform ourselves, to change ourselves. And then one day we met Jesus. And you changed us, Jesus. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who has not yet been changed, that this very moment they would repent of their sins and believe you. That they would so desperately long to be with you and they would tell the world about the mercies of God in you. Lord, we confess we do not do that perfectly, but we want to. Lead us for your own glory to tell a dying world under the grip of Satan about the one who can set them free, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.